from Minnesota Public Radio and National Public Radio. This is an American Radio Works special report. Vietnam, a nation, not a war. I'm Bill Busenberg. To most Americans, Vietnam is a nation frozen in time and memory. It seems a distant place where 58,000 Americans lost their lives in a war whose purpose seems even less clear today than when the war ended 25 years ago. 232 GIs killed and 900 wounded makes... The enemy is not beaten, but he knows that he has met his master in the field. Saigon government surrendered unconditionally to the Viet Cong... In this special report, American Radio Works travels across today's Vietnam, finding a complex nation struggling to recover from its wartime past. In the next hour, Vietnam, a nation, not a war. First, the news. Welcome to this special report from American Radio Works and NPR News. Vietnam, a nation, not a war. I'm Bill Busenberg. The conflict that the Vietnamese called the American War ended on April 30, 1975, when North Vietnamese troops captured the capital city of South Vietnam. The famous photograph of a U.S. evacuation helicopter pulling away from a rooftop in Saigon left many Americans with mixed emotions, shame, anger, relief. But what about our former enemy? It was hard to know. The U.S. lost the war, so there were none of the ties that usually reunite former enemies. No period of occupation, no Marshall Plan to help rebuild a bombed and ravaged landscape. 25 years later, Vietnam and the United States are starting to get to know each other, maybe for the first time. Correspondent Daniel Zwerdling and producer Deborah George traveled through the former war zones of Vietnam to discover how the country has mended. In this report, how Vietnamese government officials and ordinary citizens are reconciling with their old foes. The billboard in the parking lot says, Welcome to the Coo Chi Tunnels. They're big letters in plain English. And there's probably no other spot in Vietnam that symbolizes so powerfully how the Vietnamese have made peace with the American role in the war. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. The tour to the tunnel is nearly one hour. The guide is dressed like an American park ranger. He starts the tour in front of a video screen at a small outdoor theater in the woods. Follow me, please. The communist guerrillas dug 150 miles of tunnels here, right under the American troops. We're about an hour's drive from Ho Chi Minh City, or Saigon as they used to call it. The guerrillas built barracks and weapons factories and hospital operating rooms all underground. They'd live down there during the day, then sneak out at night and attack. The guide crouches at a pile of leaves. Now here, I show you the secret entrance of the tunnel. And if Americans came, discover the entrance, open the trap door, boom, Americans would be killed. Would you like to have picture? You see These there. days, Americans are welcome. In fact, the Vietnamese government has remodeled the Coochie tunnels to accommodate them. Back during the war, the guerrillas made the tunnel opening so narrow that usually only Vietnamese could slip through. Please take care. But they've enlarged the tunnels so big, fat Americans can go down too. His words. You have to totally bend over so that you're no higher than your waist. Would you like a picture in tunnel, madam? 
Pampicha? No. Let's go on. And when you emerge, there's one final stop. You can relive the war in a small way by banging away at the firing range on weapons that soldiers actually used. They charge a dollar for every shot. If that doesn't appeal to you, you can buy a memento at the souvenir shop. They've taken the profane sayings that American commandos used to mutter to build up the courage in battle, and they've engraved the words with a skull and crossbones on cigarette lighters. Though I walk through the valley of death, I will fear no evil, for I am the evilest son of a bitch in the valley. <laughs> A lot of Americans who visit Vietnam shake their heads at some point and say to themselves, wait a minute, no matter how you felt about the war, whether you supported it or opposed it or fought in it, you can't escape the basic facts. The communist-led army killed 58,000 American troops. The U.S. military and their South Vietnamese allies killed roughly 3 million soldiers and civilians in their own country. American warplanes destroyed vast areas of Vietnam with bombs and pesticides and fire. So why don't Vietnamese hate Americans? When I meet American, it is the first question uh, <laughs> to ask me. Yeah. Hu Nhoc is one of the best-known scholars in Vietnam, and he's taken us to a sacred site in Hanoi to explain his answers. You see, this uh, pagoda is unique in Vietnam. The first building dates back to 1049, yes. The Vietnamese call it the One Pillar Pagoda. The pagoda rises on one pillar out of a murky pond that's covered with purple lotus flowers. Smoke keeps twirling around it from all the incense sticks that Buddhist pilgrims light at the altar. Who says this pagoda reflects the first reason why Vietnamese have forgiven Americans? I think that uh, until now, for many uh, Americans, Vietnam is a synonym of war, but the true face of Vietnam is not war. Buddhism for the Vietnamese means the heart and compassion and pity. It is our essential feature. Of course, many religions preach forgiveness, but Nhoc says there's another explanation that's more pragmatic. When you look at the whole sweep of Vietnam's history, the war against the Americans was a blip. For more than 2,000 years, Vietnam's main enemy has been China. In fact, the two countries fought their latest war only 20 years ago. Along their border, many Americans didn't even hear about it. To survive, we have always, after the wars with China, to make peace and to forget the hardships of the war to be able to live in peace with our giants. He says the countries applied the same lesson to the United States. And finally, who says, the Vietnamese can embrace Americans now because Uncle Ho told them to. That's what many Vietnamese call the father of their modern nation, Ho Chi Minh. Ho led the country to triumph. First, they kicked out the French colonizers. Then they humiliated the United States. But many Vietnamese will tell you that even during the war, Ho said they shouldn't blame the American people for causing their suffering. They should blame America's leaders. Everywhere you go in Vietnam, it seems like many people have taken these teachings to heart. One of the hip new sports in Hanoi is an American sport. Computers calculate your bowling score, 
and the players sing along with American rock music and munch fried onion rings with ketchup or stroll along the city streets. The government has plastered the buildings with huge red banners that hail the Communist Party, but Vietnamese whiz by in their motorbikes wearing jackets emblazoned with the American flag. Maybe all this makes it sound like it's been a little too easy for Vietnamese to let go of the war. And one woman says the process has been more painful. Her name is Sen Hoa. My daughter. I'm fine, thanks. Sen Hoa is marketing director for a fashion magazine. She says her own childhood in Hanoi was war. Her home is squeezed with a bunch of row houses around a courtyard that's decorated with spindly plants. Senhua says she can still hear those nights when she was 12 years old and the U.S. was bombing the city. I just see the, the whole house shaking and the glass is broken and people screaming. I see the big hole on the street. I was so scared. I had to try to hide myself under anything that I can get myself in. I just, how to say, I just, the feeling is just, to run. Senhua says as she got older and became a mother and found a career, she thought she'd left the war behind. But then three years ago, a lifetime of buried resentments and confusion suddenly bubbled up inside of her. It happened on her first trip to America. She went on business to San Francisco. I didn't expect that I have such mixed feeling. I thought that it's a beautiful country. I went to the beach and I just walk slowly around and I see the landscape so beautiful. And I thought, they, they are nice people. When I met them on the street, they are so lovely. But the longer she stayed in San Francisco, the more she began to feel bitter. Vietnam is one of the poorest countries in the world. College professors here make $30 a month you can argue that the Communist Party's economic policies helped drag them down, but nobody would dispute the fact that the war also set the country back, way back, when other parts of Asia began surging. I, I feel a little bit envy, envy with the American. It is not fair to the Vietnamese people that the American, they have good life, they have control. Why, why should they bomb Vietnam, why should Vietnam suffer from the war? That makes the Vietnamese people live in misery and they, they are far behind from their neighbors. Unfair. Sen Hoa touches on the very issue that could knit Vietnam and America together, the economy. If you drive along a stretch of road near downtown Hanoi, you come to what's called the labor market. In most ways, it's like any other street in Hanoi. The sidewalks are crammed with vendors making noodle soups and selling clothes and fixing bicycle tires. And every morning, young men who need jobs cluster on the street corners and just stand there, waiting. Everybody in Hanoi knows that this is where you come to hire unskilled workers for the day, or even for just an hour. Some of the men are wearing khakis and helmets they used to serve in the army. They say they live part of the year on their families' farms, but they can't grow enough food to survive. Uh, we want to have more land for the cultivation, but you know that we are too crowded. Yeah, in Vietnam, it's too crowded. There's so many people. When you want to come to city to find more jobs, to have more income for the family. 
If you have any jobs and you can offer us, we are ready to help you. The problem keeps getting worse. The population's growing faster than almost anywhere in Asia. My specials tonight. <clears throat> There's a seafood ceviche tossed in a cilantro walnut pesto, which is very nice. There's a seafood stew with uh, smoked chipotle. It's lunchtime uh, at the Red Onion, just a few minutes from the street corners where the unemployed men hang out. Foreign investors hope this restaurant reflects the future of Vietnam. It's a seafood parfait, which is a Go back to the Vietnam War for a moment. Remember the infamous Hanoi Hilton? That was the nickname of the hollow prison where the North Vietnamese kept American pilots who they shot down. A few years ago, the government tore down most of that prison. And in its place, investors from Singapore built the Hanoi Towers. It's a hotel and condo complex, plus this restaurant. Lots of foreign businessmen began flocking to Hanoi and began hanging out at this restaurant. I also came to Vietnam because um, it, was, it is a transitional economy, and I thought it would be the next Asian tiger, and I wanted to, to come to a place where I could witness that evolution firsthand. Not just witness it, profit from it. This is Atticus Weller. He works for Citibank. Weller says he came to Vietnam in the same tide that brought executives from Coca-Cola and Procter & Gamble and the chef at this restaurant. There's a tremendous amount of entrepreneurial energy in Vietnam. So when you go out into the street, you, you see everyone's running a business, and, and it feels very vibrant. But lately, that enthusiasm has started to sour. Investors say government officials keep promising to do something about the corruption in Vietnam and all the frustrating communist red tape. American and Vietnamese officials have been negotiating a major trade agreement that would tackle some of these issues, but many executives say they're tired of waiting around for reforms. Weller says companies that set up factories and offices here just a few years ago have already begun to shut them down. The danger for Vietnam is not that it's going to have an adversarial relationship with the U.S. or the U.S. is interested in being imperialistic. The danger for Vietnam is that the U.S. just won't pay attention. Vietnam will, will become irrelevant. You can see Vietnam's dilemma in the city they used to call Saigon. On the face of it, the city's bursting with promise. Take a stroll along the river under the palm trees. The dinner boats are filling up with customers. The streets are blazing with neon. A woman on her way to dinner says, folks here in Ho Chi Minh City aren't all uptight like people in the capital of Hanoi, more than a thousand miles away. I think Ho Chi Minh City people is more friendly, more friendly than Hanoi. And uh, I think Ho Chi Minh City is more exciting. But if you peer beyond the traffic and blazing lights, you see the struggling face of Vietnam. All over the city, there are skeletons of half-finished office buildings and hotels. Investors started them a few years ago when it looked like the economy was going to take off. Then they walked away when the economy stalled. And some people say that Vietnam will never get out of its rut until leaders welcome two groups of people back from the fringes. Coming up, the Vietnamese want Americans back, this time as tourists and business partners. You're listening to Vietnam, a nation, not a war. A special report from American Radio Works and NPR, National Public Radio. This is a special report from American Radio Works, Vietnam, a nation, not a war. I'm Bill Busenberg. It's 25 years now since the Vietnam War ended, and the Vietnamese are still making peace with old enemies. 
As correspondent Daniels Wordling reports, the Vietnamese government will need to reconcile with some of its own citizens if Vietnam is going to join the global economy. I have been unemployed for, for 25 years. People who know him say that Nguyen is a remarkable man. Actually, that's not his real name. He's afraid if he identifies himself, he might get in trouble with the communist government. Nguyen lives in Ho Chi Minh City, and he's a gifted teacher. He could work as a translator. He could run a business or a government office. But Nguyen hasn't been able to do any of these things for the past 25 years because he worked for Americans during the war. Life is easier for, for the winners, and life is very hard for the losers. I am not a loser, but I am associated with the loser, so I have to share the fate of the losers. Nguyen's taken us to his three-room house. He doesn't want people to see him talking to a foreign journalist. When the communists from the north took over the country in 1975, they rounded up hundreds of thousands of Vietnamese who had ties to Americans. Many had fought in the South Vietnamese army. And the communists locked them up in prison camps for years. Nguyen was lucky. He worked for an American company, not the army, so he didn't have to go to prison. But he's been punished in another way. For 25 years now, the government has blocked so-called collaborators from getting regular jobs and has prevented their children from going to college. Nguyen laughs about it today, the way his country has wasted his talents. He used to be a photographer and writer. But when the communists took over, friends warned him to hide his skills. For example, don't keep a typewriter at home, number one. And don't ever use a, a camera because that is the, the equipment of a spy. So he tossed his typewriter in the garbage and he sold his Nikon camera for five pounds of rice. But Nguyen says he gets by. He tutors students in English quietly on the side and he's turned the tiny patch of dirt behind his home into a miniature farm. Nguyen says he can feed his family of 10 people with a single chicken, although he has to use a poor person's trick. If you put a lot of salt there, you can eat just one piece only. You cannot eat more. <laughs> just before the war ended, his American employers offered to help him escape the communists. They said they'd give his family a new life in the United States, but he declined, and he's glad he did. He says no matter who runs the government, Vietnam is his country. There's one very important thing, the reunification of Vietnam. That's very, very, very important to me. If there is a chance to reunify under any slogan, we can find a way to survive. The country's communist leaders are finally beginning to reach out to fellow Vietnamese who they've always seen as foes. It's too late for people like Nguyen, he's 64 years old. But Vietnam needs all the help they can get from the next generation. Yes, uh, well, what can I do for you today? I just wanted to go over the days that we are in Hanoi with you. That's right, we have arranged a city tour for Hanoi. Fabulous. When American tourists come to Vietnam, they might hire Tony Nong to arrange their trip. He's been at the office since 6 a.m. on this particular morning. He's been fielding two fax machines, three computers, and three telephones. Okay, and uh, that leaves at 8 o'clock. We pick you up at the hotel. It leaves at 8 o'clock? Tony Nong is known as a Viet Q. That's what the Vietnamese call people who fled the country after the war. The 18th of April was one of the days that uh, I, as, as a seven-year-old, remember for the rest of my life. When his mother heard that the communist forces were about to take over, she grabbed Tony and his brother and sister. They all crammed together on a motorbike, and they raced to the airport. She stayed behind with Tony's grandparents. People were running after the plane as it was taking off. 
Mothers carrying kids and, and also men hanging onto the bay doors as it was closing. And that was my last image of Vietnam. Nong grew up with relatives in California. He became an American citizen. He tried to get in touch with his mother, but nobody knew her address. He started to assume she had probably died until 1991. I received a phone call at 4 o'clock in the morning, and uh, the person on the other end said, this is your mother speaking. And uh, it was the first time in 16 years that I hear my mother's voice. And she cried for 15 minutes. She says, uh, do you remember me? Do you miss me? Nong flew to Vietnam for a family reunion. And these days, he's commuting between his homeland and the United States. He's running the family's travel agency in Ho Chi Minh City. Nong says at first, communist leaders threw all sorts of roadblocks in the way. They were worried that exiles might try to overthrow the government. But in just the last few months, Vietnamese officials have announced new policies designed to attract people like Nong back to the country. For the first time ever, Viet Q will be allowed to buy property in Vietnam. They can grow new roots here. Speaking sometimes to a lot of the people in the Vietnamese community in the United States, many do want to come back. But just that, that fear of what would happen to me if I come back. I, I think if we can overcome that by government opening up, uh, letting the Viet Qs know that, hey, you know, it's okay, you're safe to come back. I think uh, Vietnam will develop a lot quicker and the misunderstandings will be put to past. So far, Viet Q in America are not rushing to resettle. Although, planes from the U.S. to Asia were filled a few months ago. More Vietnamese Americans than ever before flew back to their homeland to celebrate the New Year with their relatives. We're back in Hanoi now, more than a thousand miles from Saigon. We're inside the infamous hollow prison. When the government tore down most of this prison a few years ago, they left just a corner as a memorial to suffering. Today, Vietnamese school kids giggle at the mannequins shackled in the old cells. They glance at placards about Vietnamese leaders who died here under the French colonialists. They look briefly at photos of American pilots who spent years here in chains. Two-thirds of the Vietnamese population was born after the war ended. By the time they have children, many people will only dimly remember that Vietnam and America fought a war. Vietnam is a nation of small farms. Some 80% of the Vietnamese people live in the countryside, where they raise livestock, grow rice, and other crops. Since the economic reforms there in the late 1980s, farmers can once again raise and sell their own crops. Daniel's Wordling spent the day in one village, about an hour's drive from Hanoi, to see what the new economy means for Vietnamese farmers. When we get to the village of Futu, their annual celebration has already started. Families have gathered around the village meeting house. This building has a steep roof with curly cues at the corners. And just inside the massive doorway, there's a huge shrine painted all red and gold. The village leader is asking everybody who's at least 70 years old to please step up to the altar. Every year, this village of 1,000 people honors all the elderly residents. The guests of honor dress up in bright silk robes. They wear different colors depending on their ages. One of the village farmers explains what's going on. Now we can see coming three old men. 
and the head of village will come and present the gifts and flowers to them just uh, to show our thanks to the old people for their contribution to the village. Now, a very old-looking woman makes her way up front, and she kneels in front of the shrine and presses her forehead to the bamboo mat. Uh, you can see that uh, she's wearing the red color, and it means that she's 80 years old, uh, 90 years old. Yeah, 90. And that gets us wondering how life in Futu has changed over these 90 years. We ask the farmer if he can come back one morning and spend the day with his family. And a few days later, he's waiting at 7 a.m. at the village gate. Our host's name is Boy Sung Tang. Actually, he should pronounce his name himself. Boy Sun Tang. Boy Sun Tang. The Vietnamese speak a tonal language. Your pitch has to be just right. To get into the village, you walk under a faded yellow archway. And as you walk down the path to Tang's home, you can literally feel how the economy's changing. Under your feet, Tang says only five years ago, we would have been walking in mud. Today, we're strolling on bricks. When we get to Tang's house, his wife shows us more dramatic changes. Her name is Wit Thi Dien. She has a huge smile and a mouth full of black teeth from a lifetime of chewing beetle nuts. She says 15 years ago, they had a thatched roof made of rice stalks, and they lit the home with kerosene lanterns. Today, the roof is covered with orange clay tiles, and they've got light bulbs dangling from the ceiling. But they're getting antsy answering questions. First things first. In Vietnam, whenever we have a guest, we should offer tea first, and after that, talking. And supposing somebody starts talking to you before you serve and drink tea. Do you think that those people, they are impolite? Now they can talk about their lives. Both Tang and his wife were born here in Futu back in the 1930s. Everybody in the village was poor, and everybody was a colonial subject. The French ruled Vietnam like a serfdom. And since then, Tang's whole family has grown up trapped in the middle of wars. During World War II, the Japanese invaded, and the village was wasted by famine. Because of the hunger, people just went out on the road, and so many people died. And especially at the corner, when you turn to the village, so many people died at that corner. Then the World War ended. The French came back, and Tang and his wife started their family. They eventually had six sons. But they hardly had any peace because Vietnamese rebels began fighting the French for independence. When the French gave up, the United States continued the war. I saw the U.S. bombers, and uh, so many uh, U.S. Uh, airplanes look like uh, birds flying across the sky. And whenever they came, we heard the siren. Our people at that time uh, told each other that the land of the village is the land of God. Some bomb was dropped, but didn't explode. When the war finally ended in 1975, Tang's family felt jubilant. After all, three of their sons went off to fight the Americans, and all three made it back alive. But gradually, they faced another crisis. The communist economy began to collapse. And to tell that part of his story, Tang leads the way to his rice fields. Yeah, it's over there where you can see the machine. 
The rice paddies surround the village in every direction. From a distance, the houses of Futu look like an island in a green sea. Irrigation canals keep the fields ankle-deep in water. Tang says when they farmed before the economic reforms, it was like going to work in a factory. They had roll call. Everyone had to be on the field at 6 o'clock in the morning. All these fields were part of government-owned collectives. It didn't matter if Tang's family grew a lot of rice or only a little. The collective paid them wages, and the government took the harvest. By the late 1980s, the country was producing such measly rice crops that even Vietnam's leaders were basically saying, this economy's in shambles, these policies are a failure. Plus, it didn't help that the Soviet Union was collapsing and cutting off their aid to Vietnam. So, Vietnam's leaders announced sweeping reforms. They parceled out the fields to the villagers. And today, farmers can do pretty much what they want. The you can go with late or early, it's up to you. And how many rice you can produce from that piece of land is up to your labor. It's up to you. The Vietnamese call this philosophy doi moi. It means new way of life. And it's motivating farmers to become more productive. Vietnam had to import rice only 10 years ago. But now it's becoming one of the biggest exporters in the world. And doi moi is turning Futu's farmers into entrepreneurs. As we walk back into the village, we pass Tom's neighbors. They're sitting on the ground, pounding metal sheets into trunks and suitcases, which they sell on the streets of Hanoi. Back at Tom's house, his family's selling hogs. These are huge changes. Before Doi Moi, you were breaking the law if you sold anything on your own and kept the profits. Now you're a patriot and helping develop the country. So when Boy and his wife and a couple of their sons sit down for an afternoon meal, they can eat more lavishly than ever before. Dian has made chicken and mushrooms and sausages and potatoes and rice. And granted, they don't eat like this most of the time. Most days they eat mainly rice. But now they can afford to splurge when they have guests. And they talk about topics that would have been unthinkable five years ago. Sexy. <laughs> They're discussing the merits of those sexy music videos on television. They bought a TV. I'm an old woman, so I don't like to see so sexy girls on TV. I just only want to hear the traditional Vietnamese music. So whenever they have that kind of program, I turn the TV off or I will leave the room to let the young people to watch it alone, not me. <laughs> Vietnam is still one of the poorest countries in the world. Malnutrition is a major problem. But development specialists say the economic reforms are dividing the population into classes. Roughly one-third of the farmers are as poor as ever. In fact, thousands of peasants rioted a few years ago, about 50 miles from this village. They were demanding more land and protesting high taxes and corruption. Then another third of the farmers are doing somewhat better. And finally, a third of the farmers are like Tang's family. Their standard of living is surging. Cracks are showing up in the society. We see warning signs when we take a stroll after lunch. Some of the most prosperous families in Futu are building new homes. Now, most people have one-story bungalows. But these new houses are three-story towers with balconies and gaudy turrets. And the owners are embedding the walls around their houses with broken shards of glass. Jealousy and crime have come to Futu. 
There are some people, they are too lazy. They don't want to walk. They cannot be rich. They become robbers or thieves. Vì có người nó nghèo, nó không muốn làm. Sad, but it happens everywhere in the world. There are always some poor people stealing from each other. Some Vietnamese leaders are worried that the new economic policies might accidentally accomplish something that America's military could never do, destroy communism. A couple of years ago, one of Tong's sons announced that he didn't want to spend his time in the rice fields anymore. He borrowed money and opened a shop. Today, he and his wife have two gleaming machines which clean the village farmer's rice and then spew it into burlap bags. And with that, Tang's family has ended hundreds of years of traditions. Nobody in this family works in their rice paddies anymore. They make most of their money in the new economy, and they hire poor farmers from distant villages to do the field work for them. I think that uh, by this way our life is better because we can hire the people who are unemployed to come so that they have jobs. And at the same time, we can do other things that make more profit. It's better. Do you wonder some days, though, whether you are becoming capitalists? <laughs> he said yes, and then after the, he said no. <laughs> so when Tan goes home and lights the incense sticks and prays at his family's altar, he has a lot of reasons to thank his ancestors' spirits. Tang's altar symbolizes one more reason why his family's prospering. After the war, some of their relatives fled to the United States, and they send money back to Tang's family. It's not much by American standards, but it goes a long way in a country where the average income is barely more than $300 per year. Tang's relatives bought this altar. It's so big, it almost fills the room. We would like to invite you, the God of our house, our ancestor, to come and celebrate with us, Tang says. We put sticky rice, chicken, wine, and beautiful flowers on the altar. We hope you'll enjoy them with us. And we ask you to bless our family with health and happiness and with success in business. Still to come, the scourge of Agent Orange, a wartime weapon with a lifetime legacy. Major funding for Revisiting Vietnam is provided by the Stanley Foundation. Major funding for American Radio Works is provided by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting and the Florence and John Schumann Foundation, with additional support from the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation. You can find out much more about the legacy of the Vietnam War in both Vietnam and the United States by visiting our website, AmericanRadioWorks.org. I'm Bill Busenberg with this special report from American Radio Works and NPR. Vietnam, a nation, not a war. Many U.S. veterans who fought in Vietnam have insisted for years that they suffer from serious diseases caused by the chemical defoliant known as Agent Orange. During the war, the U.S. military sprayed Agent Orange over thousands of square miles of Vietnam's jungles. The point was to destroy the jungle canopy, 
so that enemy Viet Cong could not hide below. In the final part of our special report, correspondent Daniel Zwerdling examines how this weapon called Agent Orange still affects Vietnam. Some Vietnamese say you can see the legacy of Agent Orange in their children. Just visit a former Viet Cong soldier one evening at his tiny home in Hanoi. To get there, you turn down a long, dark alley. Most Vietnamese houses are tucked inside courtyards, which smell musty like charcoal and rice. You can tell you're getting close to the veteran's home when you hear his songbirds. The veteran's name is Nguyen Tan Son. He and his wife and their two children and the grandparents all live together in a space that's about the size of a typical American dining room. There's barely enough room for their beds and a sewing machine and a rickety table where they serve tea. The way Son tells his story, he fought during the war with an anti-aircraft missile unit. They shot down dozens of American planes. But Sun says the planes kept coming, and they blanketed the jungle with Agent Orange. He says it looked like fog. We suffered with the eyes and with the smell, with the nose and you know, with also with sore throat. But at the time, he did not know that the consequences of Agent Orange could last for long. But when Sun came home from the war, he and his wife started a family. He gestures toward the bed right in back of us, and I realize I haven't even noticed her before. There's a little girl with pigtails lying on her back, and she's tucked under a quilt, so just her head's poking out. She's staring vacantly up at the ceiling. Sun says she's not a little girl. She's almost 25 years old. She was born paralyzed. Her name is Nguyen Thi Phương Thuy. She is deaf. She cannot do anything, she cannot speak, she cannot listen, and uh, just lying there. He and his wife had another baby. This time it was a boy. And this time, their child was born blind. Now the boy is a young man, and he explores the world in his music. He's learning a traditional Vietnamese instrument, which looks like a dulcimer on legs, but it has only one string. You know that I love this uh, musical instrument very much because it can express all the types of the sentiments of the human beings, the happiness, the sadness. It is so sweet, like my mom singing. <laughs> This veteran's family symbolizes a question mark that keeps hanging over Vietnam. How has Agent Orange transformed their country? It also raises troubling questions for the United States, and there are two main issues. First, have residues of the American pesticides actually deformed Vietnam's children? The evidence is controversial. We'll get back to it in a few minutes. Second, how has Agent Orange affected the country's environment? You can answer that question with your own eyes. Drive up a dirt road into Vietnam's central highlands. The, the very lush jungle that 
existed here 30 years ago was wiped out by the Agent Orange herbicide and even today we don't see any recovery of the jungle that used to exist here. Dave Levy helps run an environmental consulting firm based in Canada. They've been working with Vietnamese officials on Agent Orange. At the moment, we're passing farmhouses made of bamboo about an hour from the town of Hue. During the war, the armies fought some of their biggest battles in this region, and U.S. planes doused the jungles with Agent Orange. There would be anywhere from three to 11 aircraft um, staggered side by side so that they could cover a very wide area and, and would create a wide swath of herbicide through the jungle. So the pesticide would filter down everywhere? Well, the pesticide would come down as a very fine mist and it would hit the leaves of the trees and within about a day, the leaves of the trees would fall off and the tree would effectively be dead and would fall over within the next month or so. Okay, Mr. Ang, I think we'll stop here. Yeah. Levy says if we had come here in the old days, before Agent Orange, the hillsides in every direction would have been covered with thick forests. But now the landscape looks bizarre. The hills are covered with a thick green grass. There's hardly a single tree in sight. Levy says this grass is like a monster. As soon as the herbicide killed the jungles, the grass moved in. And now it won't let the trees grow back. The Vietnamese call it American grass. Unless humans intervene somehow in this environment to improve it, um, this, this will last for centuries. Levy says the Vietnamese could reverse some of the damage by tearing up the hillsides and planting millions of trees. But the government can't afford to do much. And Levy says Agent Orange has created other serious side effects. Right where we're standing, we're looking at a huge brown gash on one of the hillsides. A whole chunk of the hill has fallen away. Now it's just bare dirt. Levy says ever since the spraying killed the jungles, landslides have become common. No question, people just to the west of us here are very dependent on this road just for their daily livelihood to sell their products in Hue and uh, they're cut off for periods of days or weeks very frequently when these, these landslides occur. And Levy wants to show one more environmental legacy that's still affecting Vietnam, 25 years since the war ended. When you drive down the road, you reach the fabled Perfume River. Kings sailed here centuries ago. You have to cross the river on a ferry that's just big enough to hold two cars and a ramshackle bus. Late last year, it rained more than usual. This river gushed out over its banks and wiped out whole villages. They were the worst floods in a hundred years. About to the top of the first floor of the houses on the stream banks here were totally submerged with, with water and some, some residents in this area drowned actually. And Levy says the floods would never have been that bad if the hillsides were still covered with forests. But when you ask Vietnamese about the most important legacies of the war, they don't talk about the environment. They talk about their families. This is the Center for Disabled Children on the fringes of Hanoi. Some children have stumps where they should have arms or legs. Most of the children have mental retardation. How old are these children? He is uh, 18. 18. The center's director is a pediatrician named Win Mi Hien. She says she founded it for victims of Agent Orange. 80%, 80% handicapped children here. I think that they are affected by dioxin, dioxin in wartime. Hien says after the war ended, she and other doctors began to sense 
that veterans were having an unusual number of babies with birth defects. Over the years, she persuaded the Vietnamese government and foreign aid groups to fund almost a dozen children's homes like this one. They call them peace villages. At this branch in Hanoi, the children live in three cinder block buildings. They're spare and clean. The walls are painted that hospital minty green. As we're talking in the hallway, a girl walks up. Good afternoon. My name is Thoa. I'm fine, thank you. But she has some problem with skin, you see? First, we don't see her skin problem. Thoa is 15 years old, and she looks like a pretty young woman who happens to be wearing a black turtleneck under a white shirt. But Hien tells us to look more closely. Thoa's not wearing a black turtleneck. Her entire body, from the top of her neck on down, is black and hairy. Hien lifts the girl's shirt and shows us her back. It's covered with huge, sagging tumors. Very sad. Very, very difficult to treatment for her. Hien says Twa's father was sprayed with Agent Orange. As we're looking at her back, Twa says something. And Hien translates. Twa says her friends back home called her the water buffalo. I'm very sad because my friend thinks that my skin looks like buffalo. Look like the buffalo skin. When you talk to just about anybody in Vietnam, they accept it as fact that children like these are victims of Agent Orange. But American researchers say the issue is more complicated. Ask Arnold Schechter. He's seen the children at the peace villages. My feeling is that a minority of the problems might be related to dioxin. Schechter is a public health researcher at the University of Texas. He's been studying the dioxin problem for years. Look, Schechter says, researchers in the U.S. and Europe know that dioxin is one of the most toxic chemicals ever studied. It's actually a common pollutant. Dioxin gets created when cities burn garbage or when factories make paper or pesticides like Agent Orange. And studies in laboratory animals and humans suggest that, yes, dioxin can cause diabetes and cancer and specific kinds of birth defects. But Schechter says most of the dramatic birth defects they point to in Vietnam have never shown up in the research. Actually, he says most of those children in the peace villages are probably victims of old-fashioned plagues like polio and cerebral palsy. Schechter says the lesson is scientists need to do major, long-term studies to figure out who's really been affected in Vietnam. My best guess, we're probably going to find that there are or have been, since some may have died, hundreds of thousands at least of adults and children who have health problems from the dioxin in Agent Orange. Schechter and other researchers have been trying for years to persuade the leaders of Vietnam and the United States to study the problem together. And representatives from both countries are trying to negotiate an agreement. But one Vietnamese researcher says officials in his own government are torn over this issue. His name is Le Cao Dai. He's a surgeon. Back in the 1960s, he was operating on wounded Viet Cong in the jungle. It was um, a morning, very early morning, before the sunrise, before the sunrise. And I saw three planes very, very high in the sky. And like a wren, a small wren, falling slowly from the sky. It was Agent Orange. Since then, Dai's been studying dioxin for Vietnam's Red Cross. And it's curious. 
You'd think that Vietnam's leaders would be anxious to prove that the American pesticide has caused terrible problems. But Dai says some officials want to let go of the past. If you want to forget the past. <laughs> yes. It's, it's policy to close the door to the past, to want to be friendly with everybody, even Americans. <laughs> Dai says he's trying to convince his leaders that dioxin isn't a past problem. Its side effects are hurting Vietnam now. Dai says he agrees. They need to do more research to pin down who's been affected and how. But he says the legacies of Agent Orange are clearly so serious that maybe it's time to raise a sensitive topic. I wouldn't uh, like to use uh, the word compensation. I would like to use the word humanitarian act. Well, whether, whether you say it's compensation or a humanitarian act, do you uh, think the U.S. government should give money to Vietnam? I think that they should do it. U.S. government should do something. Vietnam's own government hasn't done much to help people who think that the accents hurt them. Until now. We're back at the veteran's home. We're back with Nguyen Tan's son and his family down their alleyway in Hanoi. So far, his family's had to raise their disabled children by themselves. Their daughter requires constant care. Their son, the musician, is more independent, but he needs help getting around town, and the family can barely afford it. Researchers like Arnold Schechter would argue that this family's problems probably have nothing to do with the war. But Vietnamese leaders have just made an announcement. They're going to give veterans $10 a month for every disabled child and sick adult if they think their condition might be linked to Agent Orange. And in this family, that's more than enough to pay their son's way through music school. I'm Daniel Zwerdling for NPR News and American Radio Works. This has been a special report from American Radio Works and NPR. Vietnam, a nation, not a war. It was produced by Deborah George and edited by Lauren Jenkins. The technical director was Michael Cullen, with help from Stephen Smith. The associate producer was Stephanie Curtis, with help from Carlos Bresenio, Dan Gorenstein, Nicole Zoiner, and Jennifer Webke. The managing editor of American Radio Works is Stephen Smith. Project manager, Nancy Fushin. I'm Bill Buesenberg. Major funding for Revisiting Vietnam is provided by the Stanley Foundation. Major funding for American Radio Works is provided by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting and the Florence and John Schumann Foundation, with additional support from the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation. For more on our two-part series, Revisiting Vietnam, visit our website, AmericanRadioWorks.org. You can also order tapes of both special reports by sending $25 to MPR Tapes, 45 East 7th Street, St. Paul, Minnesota, 55101. American Radio Works is the national documentary unit of Minnesota Public Radio in cooperation with NPR, National Public Radio.